Hi, I'm Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, an internal audit and compliance consulting firm headquartered in Los Angeles, California. I'm also a well-known speaker on topics like COSO 2013, SOX 404, quality assessment reviews, internal auditing, and related topics. Today's interview is with David Feldman, a partner at Richardson & Patel in New York City. Today, we'll be discussing NASDAQ's recent proposal to require listed companies to establish an internal audit function. We will also be talking with David about some of his personal and client experiences in the world of entrepreneurship. David is a highly acclaimed writer and is also considered one of the country's leading experts on alternatives to traditional initial public offerings, including reverse mergers in which a private company becomes publicly traded through a merger with a publicly held, quote, shell company. His book on the subject, Reverse Mergers and Other Alternatives to a Traditional IPO by Bloomberg Press, was published in 2006, and the second edition, also translated into Chinese, was released in December 2009. In 2011, TheStreet.com labeled this book the, quote, seminal text on reverse mergers, David's latest book, The Entrepreneur's Growth Startup Handbook, Seven Secrets to Venture Funding and Growth Success by John Wiley and Sons, will be published in May 2013. Good morning, David. Good morning, Sonia. I'm very, very pleased to uh, be here with you. Yeah, I'm really, really excited, and we're going to go deeper into this NASDAQ set of rules, proposal rules, that they're proposing with the SEC. So, David, let's talk about NASDAQ for a few moments. NASDAQ has put a proposal to the Securities Exchange Commission to require all NASDAQ-listed companies to have an internal audit function. How do you think this is going to change the IPO market? Well, I think, you know, just to briefly walk through kind of the proposal, they, they want these every NASDAQ-listed company to have an internal audit function separate from just management keeping an eye on financial controls and the like. Uh, they're going to require individuals to be focusing just on that. However, the proposal does permit these companies to outsource this function, although it will be carefully monitored by the audit committee. I think with respect to the IPO market, it might add a little bit of cost, but probably not in a significant way. I think it has the potential to add transparency and confidence and maybe even lead to more analysts saying, gee, you know, this company really has their act together and they're carefully monitoring uh, their internal controls, and, and we feel more positive about them. So I think it could be a positive thing. Mm -hmm. Right. The New York I, I Stock do Exchange, think as you know, already has uh, this requirement. Correct. The New York Stock Exchange already has this requirement, and, and you're right, and they can outsource it as well. And and I was kind of curious about your thoughts about really what do you think was at the root of this proposal by NASDAQ? Well, according to what they said in their proposal, they felt that it would really be helpful in helping management identify weaknesses in their uh, internal controls and develop appropriate remedial measures, uh, and also to kind of make sure that the management and audit committee receive ongoing information about how the company is managing uh, risk. And finally, I think they wanted to uh, focus on helping management that has to certify personally that their uh, financial controls are adequate, that, that this uh, internal audit function will assist in feeling more comfortable that that certification is, is appropriate. 
Yeah, and I recall the certification process, those 302, 906, it's for both the CEO and the CFO. And I think that, yeah, and and the CFO gets it. They typically have a finance background. Now, the CEO has a kind of a different DNA or, or makeup, especially in a private company. If you were a CEO of a private company, what considerations would you take given the proposed requirements and, and the deadlines listed in the proposal that were stated as of June 30th? Well, the deadlines in the proposal are that if you went public before June 30th of this year or go public before June 30th, you'll have until the end of the year to put this internal function in place. If you go public after June 30, you would be required to put the function in immediately upon going public. Remember, this is still just a proposal. It has not been approved. There was, frankly, a a piece in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago that suggested that a lot of the comments to the proposal, frankly, were not positive and that it is very possible that the rule may be reworked or possibly even withdrawn. Um, But if, if it goes forward as written, uh, companies would have to, you know, uh, get going right away. And, and, and I think if I were advising a private company considering going public, I would say start making contacts now with uh, either outside consultants or potential hires you're going to make um, to make sure that you're ready for this if and when it comes. And, and possibly even consider going ahead and putting this function in place, even if it's not required. The truth is many NASDAQ companies already do this voluntarily, and there's a lot of good reasons to to uh, to want to add this function, whether it's required or not. And and I hear in your explanation a little bit about oversight, meaning getting your ducks in a row, get the right contacts in place. And what, when I think of the right contacts, I immediately gravitate towards audit committee okay. uh, because they have a huge responsibility in the oversight of both internal audit-related functions and then external audit-related functions. So. David, how do you think the audit committee meetings are going to be changing if this new rule does become effective? Well, the rule, the proposal, uh, is very clear in adding some significant responsibilities to the audit committee with respect to this internal audit function. First of all, they're going to require that the audit committee meet periodically with these internal auditors or whoever is uh, engaged to perform this function. And in addition to have a discussion with the outside auditors of the company with regard to the responsibilities, budging, and staffing of this internal audit function. And so it's it's putting the audit committee in a place where, for the most part, management itself was more focused. And I think that could add a lot of element of pressure back on management to make sure that controls are really focused on. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned about uh, you know periodic meetings, and in, in our world, we usually interpret periodic something to the tune of a quarterly. Sometimes it's monthly, depending on the situation. Um, but then I also think about key partners, or, or maybe the word is key advisors to the organization, such as you have your you know tax advisors, you've got your uh, advisors related to M and A type of. Uh, uh, activities, and then you have your counsel that is a key, key advisor to an organization. So what advice should a CFO or audit committee be seeking from their counsel at this point? Well, I think uh, I think three things. First, um, you should be monitoring the status of this rulemaking uh, or ask your counsel to do so. As I said, it's not final yet, 
the the comment period uh, to comment on the proposal ended at the end of March. Uh, they could choose to extend it. They they do look at comments even if they're submitted after the deadline. Uh, but so, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. As I said, there were some negative comments. So it may be that the final rule that they go forward with might be somewhat different than this. That's first. Um, secondly, as I mentioned, I think you should start talking to either outside firms or potential hires uh, to get ready for this uh, and even potentially go ahead and hire them regardless. And then I think at this point the CFO and audit committee should be talking to their outside auditors about kind of what is the best way to approach getting ready for this potential change. So I think if you're doing those things, you're you're being responsible and careful. Right. It, it's a, a collaborative approach because you mentioned external auditors and they should – tune in with them uh, about it and, and learn best practices because, after all, they, they probably have seen uh, internal audit functions go well, and if they're experienced, they've seen them <laughs> go bad yes. uh, also the other way and, and, and advise their clients on what is the best practice for this type of function. Exactly. Um, now, I wanted to switch gears about your book, which I'm really excited, and I'm sure our listeners are really going to be in tune with this book. Um, I I was taking a look at your background, and I was really amazed that you've had over 25 years representing entrepreneurs and and being one yourself. Uh, What are the key personality traits that makes one more likely to be successful at starting and growing a business? Well, it's it's a great question because people need to realize that just because you've been fired or just because you're frustrated working for other people, that does not mean you're meant to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Uh, You really have to have a certain kind of personality, in my opinion. And from watching hundreds of clients go through this and, and, and go through it myself, I've kind of identified nine key personality traits that I think are very helpful and very important in making it much more likely that you can succeed uh, as an entrepreneur. Let me just take a moment on each. Um, and this is not somebody you know, who wants to go start a little Subway franchise. I'm talking about somebody who's looking to build something substantial and meaningful and potentially very large. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I feel like you need is to be a big dreamer. You kind of look at the way that Microsoft and Home Depot started very small, and you think you can do the same thing. Uh, My wife likes to say, you've got that million-dollar idea. Uh, So that's the first thing. Second is it's very helpful if you're a natural leader and decision-maker. If you're a great communicator and good listener, people will trust and follow you. You're the type of person who relishes the opportunity to efficiently weigh important choices and then kind of roll the dice. The third thing is to have an obsession, sorry, obsessive passion and drive, and I think so many entrepreneurs have this. It's not just not possible to be a successful entrepreneur without a major appetite to dive into what you're doing. You pop out of bed every morning excited for the day ahead. The clock is less important than completing your goals for the day, and you just won't rest until you're satisfied. The next thing is to be a good macro manager. Uh, I really thought I had coined this phrase. Turns out when I went online, I had not. But it's obviously the opposite of being a micromanager. The best entrepreneurs learn how to delegate. And I know many people hate the D word. Um, they learn how to delegate day-to-day tasks. 
leaving them to the important business of dreaming and planning, assisting with key hires, and helping solve major problems. Next is uh, another term I thought I'd made up, uh, a rational optimist, somebody who is very positive, very uh, excited about the future, but you're, you're quelling that enthusiasm with preparation for difficulties ahead. Next, I talk about the importance of having a healthy fear of failure, which kind of follows directly from rational optimism. Part of what drives me every day is the ringing in my head of, when are they going to take this all away? That really keeps me going. Um, the last three items, first is little fear of risk. It's just that simple. Entrepreneurs understand that the greatest rewards await those who risk the most. Um, I also talk about the importance of being controlling but not freakish. Mm -hmm. um, a true control freak will not make a great entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. but They're back to that micro mindset, and, and is, you were exactly. talking about they need to be macro mindset. You want to have a healthy skepticism yeah. of the talent and motivations of the people around you, but you've you got to be careful, as you say, that, that, that you macro-manage. The last thing is to have a disciplined personal and business life. That's not the same as work-life balance. That's being healthy and not taking the risk-taking mentality off to things that are negative things in your life, the kind of dark side of life. Okay. And those are kind of the, the nine things that I think are very important. Wow, that's, that's a very great comprehensive list, and I'm sure your, your book goes deeper, I'm assuming, in some of these traits that we're talking about. Yeah, it's a full chapter just on that. Wow, that's exciting. And, and in terms of these traits, the first thing I was thinking of was finding the right employee match. In other words, you know, I see myself, I've got these nine traits. Now, I got to have everybody with those same or like-mindedness, if you will, in terms of my employees. So, how does one go about finding the right employees, especially the type of employee that will understand and buy into the natural excitement and the risk of of an entrepreneurial company? Sometimes the biggest challenge with an entrepreneur is making them understand how important it is to hire right and to spend the time to make it important, to make it a priority. They some too many figure, ah, oh, you know, if they don't work out, I'll get the next person or everyone's going to love working for this company, why do I have to worry? And so it's not easy and and you need to spend the time. Um, you know, every entrepreneurial company is frenzied. You could put a plaque on every employee's desk that says frenzied. You need people who are okay with that, who like a little unpredictability. Uh, not everybody is like that. The, the, the tricks to, to making that work, number one, I think every hire from the receptionist on up, you should interview at least two or three times. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important to tell them the truth. Don't bait and switch and make them seem like it's going to be a fun ride and then it turns out to be this frenzied craziness. Mm -hmm. Try to find people with prior experience working with entrepreneurial companies. I think that's a real positive. Right, and the um, learning curve is going to be a little bit less if they've allowed that past experience. Exactly. I'm also a big believer in home-growing people from early on if you have the time to do that. You don't always have it. And and I think you want to be honest with people and try and get a sense of their long-term plans because the right entrepreneurial companies that grow together grow as a family. And so you want the right people who really have at least the potential of staying with you for a long time. Right, and, and bringing them up along the ranks because they've stayed with you and they've been loyal to you as well. So, And those employees, when you do find the right person, uh, I've heard so much about compensation, bonus, no bonus, uh, stock options. <laughs> David, what, 
what is the right combination of incentives to keep them motivated, satisfied, and, and highly productive? Well, it's not just about compensation. Uh, it's about how you treat people, and that is critically important. And way too often an entrepreneur is focused on his big dream. He's traveling around. He's running. He's not making a priority of determining whether his employees are motivated and satisfied. And I think the way you get loyalty from people is to give it. Mm-hmm. And simple rules that I – it doesn't even have to be cost money. You know, I think – I have simple rules like it's nice to be nice, you know, and, and, and not be yelling and screaming at people and motivating by fear. Uh, have events out of the office. Be a good listener have silly rules like jeans on Friday or four days a week over the summer, that sort of thing. And then, yes, it is important to structure compensation right. Um, but if you're offering equity and stock options and things like that, it's really important to get a sense of whether it will indeed incentivize somebody. Uh, if you've got a low-level employee who's just getting by on the salary you're giving them, maybe they're not thinking that much about the importance of stock options that may or may not be worth something five years from now. So make sure if you're going to offer equity – that it's something that's meaningful to the person you're giving it to. Right. And when I think of the word meaningful, there's some tie-in to their own uh, uh, efforts. In other words, sometimes I see these stock option plans and uh, tons of those elements of them getting grants, it's out of their control. Uh, You know, it would be kind of nice if there was a little bit of a link in terms of performance and then, boom, you get this, uh, you know, extra equity in the company. Uh, and when I think about uh, just even starting your own business, I'm trying to get my head around, I know your book covers this at length in terms of starting a business. What's your suggestion in terms of starting it on your own or should you immediately start with partners? It's a huge, huge question. I mean, you're starting on your own. The whole point of it is being free of being answerable to other people. And when you go in with a partner, you may not be reporting to them, but you are answerable to each other. And so make sure that your personality is such that you're okay with that. Sometimes you have no choice because multiple people kind of develop a business idea together. But sometimes it's a one-person operation, and the next person that comes along offers some technical expertise or something that you really need, but you don't have the money to pay them, and instead you make them your partner. You want to think very carefully when you do that, because if it's something that you're going to wish you didn't do when things are successful, you want to make sure either try not to do that or to do it in a way that could be undone or say, you know what, I'm willing to live with that with that risk. But if you go it alone, make sure you hire strong people who can deal with the areas where you're not as strong. Often a partner can help share the load and take on the things that you're less uh, interested in, that sort of thing. But, you know, great partnerships can take a company to the sky, but, you know, bad ones are really, really, you know, corporate divorce, which I unfortunately uh, work on as a lawyer quite too, quite a bit, uh, is, is, in, is worse than real marriage divorce. It is nasty. It is expensive. Uh, and so you want to be very careful before you go in with a partner. And so what I think I've heard and, and what our listeners probably gathered is, one, if, if you do get that partner, it's got to be the right mix. In other words, if I have a key strength in financing and, uh, you know, the accounting books and records, but I'm poor at some other area that's critical to the business success, and I find the right quote-unquote partner, that then that might that might be the right mix, of course, if I can't hire them uh, outright and just move the company forward. And then you mentioned a little bit about uh, the divorce and 
sounds like having a prenup, a very rigorous prenup, would be great. Um, and seeing those those problems, I mean, what do you think are the the biggest sources of of these potential problems that happen in these partnerships? Misunderstandings that that come from the very beginning. So, as you said, you know, it is important to have that shareholders agreement, that prenup, that lays out a lot of the basics, not everything, but a lot uh, in terms of how you're managing and who gets what and what happens if you die or become disabled or or leave the company or whatever it is. Uh, too many companies say, we just can't afford a lawyer right now, we'll, we'll do that later on, and then they kind of never get around to it, and then problems arise down the road. Um, so... But in addition to that, I mean, you can still have a – I've still dealt with major lawsuits over those documents. So, you know, that doesn't prevent or guarantee that you're not going to have problems. My, my, my standard is if you're having issues coming to an agreement about how to go forward at the very beginning, you are much more likely to face problems down the road. That doesn't mean you will, but if it goes smoothly at the beginning, that's a good sign, but also doesn't guarantee anything. Um, but you have to watch out, for example, if your partner's – are best friends or even romantic couples. I've seen a lot of risks uh, that come from those types of relationships, and it's very tempting to want to do that. Many times it works out great, same with family businesses. Uh, So, you know, if you brought in someone that was just giving you technical expertise, you're more likely to deal with problems. If, for example, one partner is 10 years older than the other and kind of just assumed that he or she would be the, quote, senior partner, and get to make the important decisions and maybe work a little bit less. But the junior partner thinks none of that is true. Uh, that's the kind of thing where problems can rise down the road. Yeah, and it's starting out early. Like you said, if you're already having problems early on, uh, I don't know how much better it's going to get. And, and I'm glad you hit home the concept of uh, misunderstanding, which I always think it's it's miscommunication, which, is again, hones in on misunderstanding. I thought you were doing X. No, 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 I'm doing why. <laughs> well, and it's very similar to, to a romantic relationship because, you know, it, it's kind of the honeymoon phase and you don't want to cause problems. You don't want to raise issues. You don't want to have potential disagreements. You want to be happy about going forward and doing this business together and kind of hope that everything will work out. But that is the time to say, you know, what you're really thinking. Right. And I now I'm kind of going back to starting the – starting your own business, and, and then I think about immediately, well, gosh, if I don't have partners to help with the capital, you know, how am I going to get that financing? I mean, there's going to be a, a ton of issues coming up that need capital to, to pay for it. So what is the best way to obtain financing for, for a small and growing company? Well, of course, you know, I'll give you the typical lawyer answer. It depends. Uh, <laughs> it, it depends on a lot of things, but there are kind of – a lot of it depends in part on where the market for financing is at the time. And there are things that drive what makes money available for different things, whether it's the economy, the stock markets, the political environment, the regulatory environment. These things affect whether certain types of financings are more attractive at particular points in time. But there are kind of the six key methods of financing a growing company. One is, of course, bootstrapping, where you just take your own money or money from the business and grow it that way. That's somewhat risky, but you know allows you to retain total control. There's government financing, like the Small Business Administration, which provides loans. The challenge with that is they require you to sign a personal guarantee and your spouse as well, so that if the money is not repaid, you've got to sell your house or do whatever it has to do. 
There's traditional bank financing where they might want you to sign a personal guarantee, but probably not your spouse, although they are going to tend to be tougher on defaults than, say, a government source. Mm -hmm. There's what we call friends and family round, where you sell a part ownership in your business to people who know you. Uh, that can be a nice way to go because you're going to get a more favorable uh, value for your company, and these are people who are less likely to sue you down the road. But there are also people who you hope uh, won't be that upset if they lose the money. So you have to be very careful about that. Right. You the don't want to break any relationships there. No. And so yeah. you want it to be money these people really, really, really can lose without being upset. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, of course, venture capitalists, angel investors, private equity investors. These are professional funds or wealthy individuals who put money into companies that are growing. And then once you're public, there are things called pipe investors, private investment and public equity. These are hedge funds and institutions that invest directly into companies that are public as well. Right. So, I mean, you you just stated at least six different financing options. And I'm glad you pointed out that a lot of these personal guarantees and and the spouse having to personal guarantee, it's a lot to consider. and, And it seems like... I can't imagine making these decisions without having counsel right next to me. Let like, me tell what you are one the risks and rewards? If you don't mind, and that is, a, a client of mine was a spouse, a, a, a wife of a guy with a business. They lo- they borrowed one million dollars from the Small Business Administration for his business. Mm-hmm. They signed, both signed personal guarantees. The business went down. The loan was called. The husband divorced her, moved to Puerto Rico, declared personal bankruptcy and left her with the $1 million obligation. She had to sell their house and even then uh, had to pay off. That only paid off about half of it, and the other half she paid off over a 10-year period where she really, really struggled. Oh my God, that's like a horror story. Horror story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, again, I can't imagine. For all the financing options, that you, there was at least six. Uh, talking to counsel say, well, what's, What's the risk here? You know, uh, and yeah. they, some of them have great rewards, but there's obviously some risks involved. Um, and I wanted to talk about the IPO market. He, well, locally here in Los Angeles, it's, it's pretty lacking, is probably a good word. Um, yeah. But for a business that's private um, and they're growing, they, they've got some organic growth. Who knows? There might be some M and A transactions. What are the key indicators for a business to say, hey, we're finally here, we should go public, or these key indicators tell us, no, 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 you know what, we need to stay private? Well, remember, as you indicated up at the top, uh, I help a lot of companies go public, not necessarily through a traditional IPO, but through other means. So I think the most important thing to ask, as as you've said, is, you know, does going public make sense, not does an IPO make sense? And if you ask that question, my uh, advice to clients is generally to look at two other questions, which is, one, can we benefit from being publicly held? And two, can we bear the cost of doing so? And if the answer to both of those questions is yes, it's something you should look at. And as we all know, the major benefits of being public, probably the most important one, is access to capital, that you have, as a public company, a much easier time of finding money to finance your business on favorable terms than if you are a private company. That's the main benefit. But, of course, other companies go public because they want to grow by making acquisitions, and you can use your public stock as a form of currency to do that. Some feel it's important to develop kind of a path to liquidity for their ownership of the business where maybe an M&A scenario might be more difficult. Mm -hmm. Others use it as a way to incentivize their executives with stock options and other 
benefits. Some see the PR benefits of being public. There are certainly some negatives to being public that you have to go through as well, and you do have to make sure that you can finance yourself properly to bear the cost of being public as well. But all of that being said, if you can answer those questions, yes, I think it doesn't matter what your stage of development is, that if you're an early-stage company that can benefit from being public and raise money, it's something you should consider. Mm-hmm. It should, it's something that should be on the table, and, and I'm guessing it should be on the table, what, annually? Somebody should review this, those two questions? I think so. I think one of the challenges, though, is with, particularly with venture-backed companies, the venture community, for the most part, has not really adopted these IPO alternatives like a self-filing or a reverse merger. They'll consider an IPO when the time comes or an M&A strategy, uh, the only exception being the biotechnology industry where they have embraced these alternatives. So if you're a venture-backed company, you can talk about going public, but it is likely you are only going to be talking about an IPO, which you probably won't qualify for until you're much larger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have a, a bigger capacity. Now, we talked about capital and, and the benefits of raising uh, raising capital via uh, public, uh, being public. But I want to switch over to some other intangibles in life uh, other than money, okay? What are the real tricks to a proper work-life balance? And more importantly, why is it even more important, let's say, for you know a hard-charging entrepreneur? It's critically important, and not just because life is short and all of that. It's critically important to do the best job you can do in running your company. If you run yourself ragged and are a workaholic, you will probably have a greater likelihood of failure because you don't have the focus, you don't have the perspective, you don't have the big picture view. And the key is to realize that it's not work slash life. I've kind of renamed this because work life implies it's part of life that doesn't include work. (laughs) And these days with our text-crazy world, that's just not the case. So I call it work-less-work balance. And I think once you realize that you're never fully going to get away from it, you've got to find ways to at least partially get away from it. And, you know, my life in the large law firms, if you worked a million hours, the more hours you worked, the more well you were perceived. But there's no question the work I did at 1 a.m. was not as good as the work I did at 4 in the afternoon. So my focus is on teaching people to work smart without having to work as hard. So time shifting, for example, to make family time. If my son is in a performance at 9 a.m. on a Monday, I'm there, even if it means I have to get up at 5.30 to do some extra work or you know, get some stuff done after he goes to bed at night. Secondly, delegate. An entrepreneur should learn how to pass work on to junior people, knowing they won't do it as well as you, but hoping that they will do it well enough. Uh, Working from home sometimes can be very beneficial to provide from some perspective. Not as a day off, it's a work day, but it's a work day away from all the craziness. I think that's very important. I, I think going on more vacation but taking work with you so that you don't feel as guilty versus not going at all is a positive thing. And also finding not just family time but me time. And as selfish as that sounds, it's very important, even if it's as short as a 15-minute bath or a massage or a manicure. Uh, I try when, on, on most business trips to add one afternoon where I have absolutely nothing scheduled. And I go tour the town or I do something for myself or even as silly as take a nap. Uh, it's also important to get off your butt and exercise. That's very important. And then the last thing is, Uh, I made a change about two years ago that changed my life, and that is I took my now iPhone, then BlackBerry, 
And when a text or an email comes in now, nothing happens. There's no buzz. There's no vibrate. There's no anything. I check it often, but I check it when I check it, rather than feeling like Pavlov's dog, having to pull it out of my pocket every the second something new happens. And, I, and all those things can, can help you get better focus. Yeah, no, I, I really, I, lo- I love that little tip. Don't let your phone, because we all have mobile devices now, don't let it control you. And you're right. I mean, as soon as that thing goes off, it's this immediate gratification or uh, I don't know if you want to call it um, sense of urgency you place on that object and you say, well, this, this must be important. I just got a text or it's making a noise. It called my attention. It, it's, I'm glad you pointed that out uh, just to say, no, you control it. Schedule the time that's appropriate for you. If it's, hey, I'm going to check it once every three hours, then Great, it's once every three hours, but not one every time it goes off, because it'll keep going off every five minutes. I know a female entrepreneur, and every Friday night when she gets home, her husband takes her phone away from her and hides it, (laughs) gives it back to her Monday morning. Her staff knows her home number if there's something very, very urgent. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, everybody knows things will have to wait, and they say it's done wonders for their personal life and for her perspective and everything else. And you know what I, I was just thinking in terms of that, uh, that all the employees know that from Friday to Monday <laughs> she's off limits unless it's an emergency. I think it might empower them. You know, it's like she might realize, hey, I don't need to make a decision on Saturday or Sunday about X or Y. Let Joe Smith or Susie Smith control that. that. That's really not that important. It's obviously not an emergency. So maybe it's kind of a good check-in with the, the staff, but more importantly empowering them to make decisions when – I don't know, X or Y, Z comes up, but it's obviously not an emergency. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in terms of failure, and I hate to, to to mention it, but it does happen. If if you had to pin everything down to the top, let's say, three things that are most likely to cause a new business to fail, what do you think they, they would be? Well, the biggest one, I think, by far, is undercapitalization. Uh, and I think most... Uh, research that you read about would confirm that. Companies simply don't have the ability to raise enough money or they aren't smart enough to raise enough money uh, for what they need. And and part of being uh, not just an optimist but a rational optimist is realizing that you can't just think all good things are going to happen in the future and you don't need a lot of money to get your company there. Mm -hmm. And you need to understand that, that you have to plan when people write a business plan, I tell them, here's the most important part of the plan. Plan for the plan not going according to plan. <laughs> and once you do that, when you think about things like your financing strategy, uh, whatever amount of money you think you need, it's going to be more. And so that's the number one reason. The second reason, I think, is kind of bad partner choices. I think there are great companies that develop but arguments and fights and problems develop between partners. They go into different camps. Some employees are with some, some with others, and slowly that can destroy the business. Mm-hmm. The last thing, and we haven't had a chance to talk much about this, in some later stage companies, uh, especially with kind of workaholic types, you can get real burnout where an entrepreneur just runs out of energy and can't even do it anymore after spending 15 or 18 or however many years building a business. They're just and in my book, we talk a lot about ways to prevent this with some of the things we've been talking about. Uh, but that's a major cause of 
companies going down, as well as the opposite problem, which is, which is called boredom. Uh, when your company's going swimmingly well and everything's great and it's kind of running itself, well, what then? You know, if they don't really need you anymore, mm-hmm. then what do you do? And so we talk a lot about that in the book as well. Yeah, it's it's kind of needing that validation uh, for the entrepreneur to say, well, they need me. You know, I, I, I am still significant, but when it runs so smoothly, which it should be, it should be a system, right? It's a good it's problem, a, right. It's a good problem, but then the mind kicks in in terms of a negative way. It says, well, what next? What? So it exactly. sounds to me like having long-term goals, maybe outside of the business. You follow that? That that might be another great way Absolutely. of, you know, decreasing your chances for failure because you're not really bored. You're you're moving on. You're constantly annually writing your goals, and some of it may not deal with the business. So when the business is running like a system, and it's bam, you have these other opportunities to look at. Who knows? Volunteering or you know, giving to charity, uh, you know, maybe more more time with the kids and some of their goals. Yep. I have um, a client who has a trucking business, and, and just like this, he was it was running itself. He The customers kept coming. Their, his senior management was phenomenal, and there were a few major decisions he had to make. And what he decided was, I'm going to be on my boat two and a half days a week, mm-hmm. and I'll be here the other two and a half. And that way, the two and a half that I'm here, there's enough to do, and then the rest of the time, I'm enjoying my life. Right, right. I mean, it's 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 a nice plateau to reach. Exactly. Now, I wanted to get into some of your own personal experiences, David. Um, do you have any personal regrets about you know about your own business path? Well, I think I would say that there are certainly things I might have done differently over the years. Um, you know, I bought a radio station when I was in law school, and. I'm glad I did it, and I'm glad for the experience, and I write about it as, you know, I say you don't become a true entrepreneur until you suffer at least one significant setback. And I was lucky enough to have that happen early and relatively inexpensively. When we finally sold the radio station uh, for a loss, we we had got enough money to pay our investors back, and that was it. So nobody lost money. Uh, it was an expensive lesson in, in the time we put in. Uh, and But... but I, I don't even regret that, really, in a way, because it taught me a lot about the downside and sort of crisis management and things like that. I think most entrepreneurs will say what I just said, which is, while there are things I might have done differently, I don't regret the path that I've taken. There's no question it was more difficult for me to walk out of a very comfy, uh, well-paying job in a major law firm and start my own law firms and run them for 18 years and, and literally live off whatever clients I could bring in uh, on a month-to-month basis. I've loved every minute of it. It's been frustrating. It's been wonderful. It's been exhilarating, and I wouldn't trade any of it. Wow. I, I think our audience is really going to take home some of these uh, life lessons that you're bringing to us because I think some people are a little gun-shy of sharing their own personal failures. But I think when, once you listen, you almost say, well, okay, it's it's okay. It's okay for me, too. Yep. Uh, especially if you're starting a new business or thinking about uh, getting into business with a partner. Well, we're about to wrap it up, and I want to say it's been a huge honor to have David Fillman as my guest today. Dave's David's vast experience as an entrepreneur, a business advisor, and an expert in the IPO markets makes him a unique expert to have and a, and a huge asset to the business community. 
David, I just want to say thank you for your time. I'm really excited about the potential positive impact about this interview, especially on your new book coming out. I'm really excited about that. It's coming out this May. You can pre-order it on Amazon now. Yay. (laughs) This is Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, signing off.